Um, this week, Passion Week, and as we look at Passion Week, <clears throat> and I hope you've been uh, took on the challenge from Sunday to read through the the accounts in all four Gospels and find yourself putting them together and seeing how they all fit together in regards to the full story as much as the Lord has given us. And uh, as we take a look, we're going to obviously take a break here from the discipleship journey series that we've been doing and continue Passion Week. And I wanted to catch a couple of key things from what I didn't touch on on Sunday. I won't re-go through uh, uh, the... Um, the triumphal entry, the Christ's arrival. <clears throat> I will talk a little bit about a Monday and Tuesday of this week of, of the journey for Jesus and his disciples. But then I'll highlight Wednesday uh, during for Passion Week, and we will see, we will be talking much about uh, Passover and what took place in the, gar- uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and then the betrayal. So, uh, and I'll explain that a little bit more today about why uh, Wednesday is, uh, we're going to talk about Passover, but we will also on Friday, uh, that traditionally many people call Good Friday, but uh, we'll talk on Friday, which is our next uh, special uh, teaching, and I will take Thursday and Friday of what took place in regards to Jesus' torture and uh, being nailed uh, there on the cross and his death and burial. So we will take that on Thursday uh, and Friday, but we'll be teaching there at 6.30 Friday night. So if you could come back and join us here or online, that would be great. Now when we take a look at Passion Week and the whole accounts, more than once Jesus told his disciples and all of those around him that stayed close, he kept repeating something, saying, my time has not yet come. We see that in John chapter 2, verse 4, and also repeated in John chapter 7, verses 6 and 8. They were always ready and pushing Jesus to take over because in their minds it was he that was going to be their king and it was he that was going to take over and throw out the Roman government and and set up the uh, government that they wanted a king over them. He often, Jesus often would follow with that as like a foreshadowing of his death and he would make a mention that the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many and we see him talking about that in the gospel of Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 and Mark 10 45. Now naturally this brings a question when when is Jesus's time actually going to come? If it's not yet come, he's also talking about his death. Okay, this is how is this all going to work out? Because the many the disciples and those following them, his followers, were not catching that. But as we will see in the Passion Week, we're going to take a look at the chronological and the fact-based day-by-day look at the last week of Jesus' life. Including the Passover, which we will do tonight, and then taking the accounts of the, through the four Gospels of what and how and why I came to the conclusion, or you may come to the same conclusion as you read the uh, accounts of all four of the Gospel accounts of the day there of the Passover, his, the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal uh, that day. 
Now, in Jesus' last week of life, he fulfilled his mission to seek and save the lost. What was his mission? Why did the Father send his only begotten Son? To seek and save the lost. That's you and me. And ultimately, he became the atoning sacrifice for humanity. Once and for all, it was finished, paid for all, complete on the cross. We will get to that on Sunday's message uh, for sure. Or no, actually, we'll be talking about it actually Friday night uh, in that part of the message. Now, when we take a look at the accounts, you can scrutinize and scrutinize and go through it and through it and make notes of when the morning started and when the end of the day finished. And you're going to go through these, especially Matthew, and you'll come and you'll scratch your head because traditionally everyone said it happened on these days. But when I read the account, I don't see that clearly. I'm going to try to bring some clarity to that, certainly for tonight, but also uh, more on Friday. So hopefully that will help you see what I see as I study the scriptures and put this all together. Now, when we look at the start of the accounts, I use the basis of Thursday or Friday of last week of the start of the Passion Week or the starting of the motion or the sequential, sequential events of saying that we, he arrived six days prior to. And that makes us somewhere around Thursday, Friday before the Palm Sunday that took place. Why? Many people believe it was Saturday, but I don't see it Saturday because a devout Jew would never, can never walk more than two miles from one point to the next on a Sabbath holy day. So on a Saturday for being a Sabbath, he would, they would not be able to travel as far as they were able to do that. Now in Mark chapter 10 verse 32, he tells his disciples what is going to be happening. He already knew what was going to be happening. He knew how this was going to play out, but the disciples did not. But Jesus was always warning his disciples what was going to take place before it actually took place. I was always encouraged by that when I studied the scripture. Oh, what is going to happen in my life? What is going to happen next? What is this? Many times, most times, if not all times, God, if you're in the word and you're sticking close to him and in listening to him, he gives you warnings. He gives you understanding or glimpses of possibly of what's going to happen in your life, just like he said to the disciples. But there in Mark 10, 32, it says, Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again, began to tell them the things that would happen to him. In their journey, which was about 12 to 15 miles from Jerusalem, Jesus heals two blind men in the process on the way to Jerusalem. We know it's Bartimaeus or in another person. We see that account in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, where he talks about on the way to Jericho, he comes across and he heals uh, two blind men. And he talks about as they were crying out to him as he was coming through that area, they heard the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was coming and they already had heard of all the great things that God was doing healing people. And they cry out, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. 
We also see that same account talked about in Luke chapter 18, verse 35, but is only referencing one of the blind men at that point, begging on the side of the road uh, during this period of time. But on their way, not only does he reach out to, to, knowing he's going to the cross, knowing what was ahead of him in Jerusalem, he was still doing what God called him to do, and he was showing mercy and healing people as he was going and touching their lives. Not only the two blind men, but he also came to a man in Jericho by the name of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, if you know the story. And he touched his life, and what an amazing story that is there in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, behold, there was this man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, and he was rich, but no one liked him. No one liked the tax collectors. They were at the bottom of the pit when it comes to from a Jewish perspective's mindset. After Jericho, if you remember, this is where we picked up on this past Sunday. They were coming in from Bethany, primarily to Bethanage, on the Mount of Olives. And there, at the sabbatical distance, they were allowed to travel. Again, because now they're, it's Saturday. Now they they're, can only travel two miles based on the Jewish law. That was as little bit of they can do. You could not do any work, but you could be limited on your travels. They traveled just about two miles to get to, into the, to Jerusalem, but on the Mount of Olives. And there, that's where we picked up the story about the disciples being asked, going uh, sending two of them out to go get a donkey and its colt. Uh, there in Matthew uh, chapter 21, as we took verses, the first six verses there. We also know, as he was sitting there on the Mount of Olives, we know what was going on there. Uh, and he's sending them into the village to get that colt and the uh, donkey. That we see that when they arrived there, they had been staying at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. If you remember the story, he raised Lazarus from the dead, John 12. Uh, and also uh, verses 1 and 2, and then, of course, verses 9 and 10, he raised him uh, there, Lazarus, in his, at his home to life. Now, that was significant because at that point, now the uh, Jewish leaders, not only the people, but the Jewish leaders, were becoming unglued of the fact that now he's claiming to be who he is and raising people from the dead, and that is when things started turning uh, turning differently, as we will see in the accounts here, uh, and for uh, Monday and Tuesday's accounts. We talked about on Sunday, the Palm Sunday, the triumphal uh, entry there, and how they were worshiping uh, with palm branches on the ground and clothes on the donkey and on the ground and to welcome this, this, the, their king in there, but he was coming on a donkey, meaning he was coming in as a peacemaker, a, a prince of peace, not a warrior. And we went through that. You can come back and listen to that teaching. But as we see the things unfold, we are now on Monday. They went back to Bethany. They're staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now they wake up that morning. They're coming back into Jerusalem. Not very far. He and his 12 disciples almost certainly, again, been staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it appears in the scriptures in Luke that each time they went into Jerusalem and to the temple and stuff, they were teaching and sharing. And at nighttime, they went back to their house or at least into the Mount of Olives. 
We see that in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, when Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So you could see the reference in the scriptures how he was, they were coming and going. But when we, he sees here on this Monday an account that takes place as they're journeying, journeying back into Jerusalem, something happens and we see a series of things. I, I encouraged you to go back and read through. We don't have time to touch on every single one of those things. But it was important for you to at least go back and take a reference to um, to those because of the fact that it was uh, very significant in regards to we want to know. The fact, the first thing that we see that is he curses a fig tree on his way, on his way in. Now when he sees that happening, he talks and gives a lesson about the fact that uh, he, he, there was all these leaves. They looked beautiful, like a beautiful fig tree. But when he went over to pluck the fruit or get fruit from it, there was no fruit and they should have been fruit. And he used that as an analogy, an illustration to teach them about the fact that there are many who look like they have faith, but there are no fruit from their life. And it's not bearing fruit and will not bear fruit because it's not a healthy tree. He continues down through as he weeps over Jerusalem coming in. He cleanses the temple for the second time in his ministry there. Why? Because he's entering the part of the temple where they were supposed to be quiet and subdued and praying and seeking the Lord as all the people were coming in from all over the, the known world. The Jews were coming in from all the known world and even the Gentiles in the outer courts to be able to come and seek God. But the religious leaders allowed the, the, the place where his people, God's people, were to come and to meet with him and to gather. They turned it into a den of thieves. They were merchandising the people. They were, just, they were just fleecing the people to try to get the money from them. They didn't really care about them. They just only cared, in fact, how much money they could get from them on all the different things. And, the, you know, people are like tourism. You know, let's go, and when we went to Jerusalem, that's, it just certainly felt like it when you went to some of those holy sites, and you went there, and it was just more tourism that they wanted to sell you all these little trinkets and stuff for you to be there versus just really looking at the scripture and seeing this is where Jesus stood, and this is where the teaching was happening on this place. But many times, even today, people will turn churches into merchandising. All they can do is, what can they sell next? Now, I'm not saying... You can't have a bookstore. We'll have a bookstore eventually because we want to equip you with good, solid teachings. We'll have lots of different types of Bibles there for you to teach. If you like the, you know, the leather versus the synthetic. I mean, we're just going to provide because where do you go today to go to a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, to get to buy anything, let alone look at or touch it these days, right? So we'll have some things that are significantly, we review them, make sure they're very biblically based, that's going to encourage you and equip you in your walk, and that's what will be. And it's a little tiny place we'll build out here in the near future. 
But here we see, but this is what they were doing, is they were using this as a merchandise to really just fleece the people. And as you know, people were bringing their animals coming in, the sheep or the doves, to be able to use them for their sacrifice. And they were using that as an opportunity, saying, look, at you're journeying here for all these days. They're a mess. They're not, they're not pure. They're not, they're, look at all the blemishes on it. You can't use that. We'll take that. We'll give you a little bit of money. And then you can take one of ours, and this is how much you're going to pay additional for that and they were making profits off that again Jesus saw what it was saw and we know the account he went flipping tables he was he was he was whipping them out of that place because it was just not going to happen but this is really a point where everything changes in his ministry because prior to that he wasn't really causing any confrontation or be willing to, to commit confrontation. He was willing to talk about the, the things of God and, and talk in details about the things of God. And, and sometimes people would not agree with him and they met with a lot of religious leaders. But here on Monday and Tuesday, you really see as you read through the accounts, he starts teaching all these parables to talk about this transition for them to understand the difference between the law and grace. Between the, 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 the understanding of faith and, and living by faith and trusting in God and God alone uh, for your salvation. And he goes through these and, and cleaning out these buyers, these sellers that we see annotated. And you go back and um, look at Mark 11 verses 15 through 18. And he talks about how my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. This is not a place where you come to buy and sell things to see if you can, what you can gain from the people. This is, this is about a place where uh, this is my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief Pharisees were not happy. Because now Jesus is being confrontational. He's now pointing out the obvious of what is not should not be happening. And so it's affecting their livelihood because they were making profits off this. It was, they're gaming the system here. And he was putting a stop to it. Now that means they're no longer he's just going out and taking people attention off of them. Now they're messing with their livelihoods in a way that they shouldn't even be doing in the first place. Then in Matthew uh, chapter 21, verse 17, we see in that Monday, he leaves the city uh, with his disciples and heads back across out of the city. Now, as he spends his night with, uh, in, in Bethany, which is obviously with Lazarus and Mary and, and Martha, Tuesday turns really even more intense now. Because when you take a look at the accounts in Matthew 21, starting with verse 20, Mark 11, 20, and you can go down through the four disciples. On Tuesday, we see that the disciples see the withered fig tree on their return to Jerusalem. We see it there in Mark 11, verses 20 through 26. It says, now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Not just dried up from the leaves. That withered very quickly once he cursed, Jesus cursed the tree, it withered. But they can tell it was completely dead from the roots. There was no life in this tree. And when they saw that in verse 21, Peter remembering said to, to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. 
For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whatever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may forgive, also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So again, Jesus is using an opportunity to prepare his disciples, but also we see that he's, he's prepared to meet uh, head to head with these Pharisees, the religious leaders that are going to come against him. As he goes into the temple that morning and Tuesday morning, he debates in Jerusalem. We see that in verses 23 through uh, chapter 21, verse 23, all the way through chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 39. He is doing nothing but being challenged and they are setting him up looking to try to catch him on some kind of minute point. Uh, to, so that they can say to the people, look it, he's a false teacher. Look, 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 he's a false teacher. And there's nothing new under the sun. People who have a critical spirit or who are, who are legalistic, they're always looking for the pastor to slip up so that they can call that out, not only to them, but to everybody who will listen to them, again, to draw attention to themselves or to point out some kind of key point they want to, uh, emphasis of their, their religiosity they want to point out as an emphasis. So, Nothing new under the sun. These religious leaders did the same. But what they did not understand is who they were dealing with. What they didn't understand is Jesus responding in such, with such wisdom and showing how little they understood and applying the, of the scripture. And when that happened, it shut each one up. Every time they came against them, they sent someone else to try it. And they shut them up with a, with a wisdom. And, he, and that, they went on to the next one. Well, again, this debating kept going on all the way through, not only Monday, but especially in Tuesday. And we find that as they were leaving the temple there at the end of the day, in Matthew 24, verse 1, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples and came to show him the buildings of the temple. So we find ourselves, he leaves Bethany and the twelve disciples that morning. They came across, saw that fig tree, did some teaching there and teaching on faith and how important it is to have absolute trust in, in God and what you're talking to him about. He talks about coming into the temple and cleaning that up and, and just just making sure, saying woes, a lot of woes to the enemy in that, uh, all those debates. And then we see he leaves there and they head to the Mount of Olives. And there in the Mount of Olives, we see in the scripture the Olivet Discourse that takes place where they're discussing in Matthew 25 and chapters 24 and 25. And we see there in 24.3, says, Now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So we see there in those chapters, especially when he talks about the ten virgins, he talks about the talents, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats, and the separation that was going to take place. 
The disciples were sitting there after all this is going on and seeing all the confrontation and debating and stuff. This week, things are all different than they've been used to. Before, Jesus was like, okay, let's, that's enough. We're leaving. You know, we're not going to cast you know, pearls before the swines. We're just going to dust your feet off. If no one's receiving, we're moving on to the next one. But now he's right there in the midst of this, and he keeps talking about end times. He's talking about these things. They finally said, hey, Jesus knew that he needed to sit them down at the Mount of Olives, how critical it is to look back at the Temple Mount, and he's going to talk to them about these end times and the difference between those who are saved and those who are not saved. The how you're saved and the, the, the life of, of the eternal kingdom versus life here on this world. Those who are ready, like the ten virgins, some half of the ten virgins were ready, but the other ones were not. They were just le- leaning on whatever they had themselves. They weren't prepared to, for the bridegroom, to, the bridegroom to come. And it was a, it's this parables to even to prepare us because you know when Jesus is up there on that Mount of Olives teaching this, he wasn't teaching just them because he's talking about end times. He's actually talking to you and I today because these are the things that were to come. This is about his return, not at the moment at that, that, that point there in the Mount of Olives in that time of of. of of our, our history, but he's actually giving to them what will be passed down and be communicated and taught and understood with an expectation of Jesus' return. They didn't understand any of that because he was still there with them. He hadn't been to the cross yet. He didn't, they didn't understand any of these things. And he understood he had to give them hope. And that's what Monday and Tuesday, especially tonight, Wednesday, Thursday, and into Friday, just he had to have them understand hope in life. If they didn't understand hope in life for the future, you can become very hopeless in your life when you live a life in this world. Because if your eyes are just strictly on this world and the things that you can get or can't get or you had and then you lost it all or you, you were moving forward but then you messed up big time and you, oh, can, how can I ever have a life again? This scripture, this passion week is for you. It's for me because he can take the messed up lives and those who love them, those who love him gives them the the faith, the grace that he will turn things around for his glory and give you hope and life, eternal life. That's what Passion Week's all about. Yes, all these different things and the parables and then the Passover and the Gethsemane and, the, and then we'll get to, on Friday, we'll talk about what took place on that Thursday, the, 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 the torture and the, the cross and the, the burial and, the, uh, and, the, and we'll talk about that. It can get really dark because it is dark because sin is dark. But we have to remember this was all played out and communicated to his disciples, communicated to us that we have hope in eternal life and eternal kingdom. The story doesn't end on Thursday. It doesn't end on Friday. It doesn't end on Saturday. It all starts beginning new on what? Sunday morning when they find that the tomb is empty. And that's a beautiful thing, is it not? 
But we see here, as we take a look, that he gives and he's communicating, he's talking through, he's uh, wanting to make sure they understand these things, the, the, the parables of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the, uh, the sheep and goats. We get to Matthew 26, verse 1 through 5. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that two, uh, after two days is the Passover. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled. And the palace of the high priest, who was called uh, Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So that's the kind of the final kind of words that we see there as they head back to Bethany and they are going to have in the scriptures we see they're going to have dinner with a guy named Simon the leper at the leper's house where a woman anoints him with this very expensive perfume. We see it played out here in Matthew chapter 26 verses 6 through 10. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, they was aware of their little squawking and little secret conversations over in the corner between themselves. That never happens today, but it happens back in those days, people getting together and talking, talking. Jesus understood. Jesus sees all things. He knows. And so he called them out on it. Once he understood, once he saw it, they were indignant and he saw that they were having these conversations among themselves. He says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For in pouring the fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And we just did that tonight. This woman, as a memorial, is, is God, Jesus, like, I, she's going to be blessed and be known for what he, she has done because God has put on her heart to prepare. She may not even fully understand, but she, it was a form of worship, and she was willing to pour out and give him everything because he was her savior, her king. She didn't fully understand. She just knew that was the Messiah. But interesting, the disciples who had been walking with him for three years didn't get it. Judas, Judas Iscariot agrees uh, to, in his head, a desirous place in his head that he has got to make a change. I am against Jesus now. I'm against my leader. And I'm going to go do my own thing. And I'm going to turn him in because this is not how it's supposed to play out. He's supposed to be king. 
He's not playing out to be king. He's not overthrowing Rome. This is not how I thought this was all going to happen. I'm not happy, so I better benefit from this somehow. And I know the desire that was from Satan placed on his heart or his flesh and says, how can I make money off this deal? And we know in Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, Why are you willing to give me, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, Jesus, to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver, so from that time he saw opportunity to betray him. Teaching after teaching, after teaching, after teaching. And Judas didn't get it. That is amazing for us as believers who do get it and they just keep seeking and God keeps bringing clarity of his word to us. It's like, why doesn't everyone get this? Because Judas's heart wasn't right from the very beginning. He was looking to see what he could get out of the church, what he could get out of the relationship. Not about worshiping and giving to his Lord. That's the difference. When I say, when you people say, do you have a personal relationship with him? That means you are of a, a, a disciple, a worshiper, a follower of Jesus. You're looking to, what can I give? What can I do for him? As a response from all the love that I know that he has for me. Why? Because he died on the cross for my sins and set me free. And out of that grace and acknowledgement, how can I not give my life to him and do whatever he puts on the desires of my heart to do for him and his kingdom to bring him glory? Some people get confused. And say, yes, I'm a Christian, but they are a Christian not in the sense of what I just described, but in the sense of a religiosity of thinking you can earn your way to salvation. You cannot. You can't work your way there. You can't do anything. Stay away from the do's and don'ts. It's not going to work, and it hasn't worked. And you're looking to see what can get out of religion. What, what can the church give me and get out of it? And how's, this, how's Jesus going to get me out of my situation that I got myself in because of my sinful life, my flesh that ru- rules me? That's not a personal relationship. That's religion. That's a pharisaical heart. That's what Jesus was dealing with here. That's what Judas is dealing with here. He's following through with the desire that was put on his heart that was not of God, but of the flesh or of of demonic forces. But we see there in Luke 21, 37 through 38, again, he followed through. It always starts, sin always starts with a thought, then opportunity, and then you take the step, which he did, which he actually went and said, what can you give me, 30 piece of silver? I'll take it. It's a fulfilling of prophecy, as we know. But that's exactly what happened. Which then brings us to Wednesday. Wednesday here. And we see that many scholars 
many great teachers will say, and many commentators will say, Wednesday, it's silent in the scripture. He didn't do anything. We're not sure what he did. I, I th- and many of you, you'll hear really good, solid, I mean, just absolute people you just, I love to listen to. We'll describe it this way because they're silent. We're supposed to say silent. If the scripture's silent, we stay silent. But I don't see it silent. I see it very clearly as I study the scripture that Jesus didn't have to take a day off because uh, the trip on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of church time. That's a really busy time in the church. It's been a really rough road taking all these roads and these debating and all these things. I'm tired. And the disciples tired. we're just going to hang with Mary and Martha and Lazarus because we, we need to take and just be restful right here the whole day. Now, if, if that is of God, I always say in the scripture, if that is really truly what happened, then I believe God would have said to us, they spent time with Mary and Lazarus and Martha sitting and talking about the things of God. And that's it. But there's nothing. Why? Because you don't see it as clear because there's no... In the morning, they rise up and went from Bethany, headed to Jerusalem. At the end of about a chapter or two, you see at the end, then they complete, they left Jerusalem and went to, to Bethany. There's not a clarity there. But if you could just read through Matthew, this is how I lean for two reasons. One, I don't see a break where there's another morning and night. And two, to be able to have what we will talk about on Friday, he was buried Three days and three nights. The word and is very important, and we'll talk about that Friday night. That's a little teaser. you got to come back so we can, we can talk about that. So we see here on Wednesday, I'm going to present this to you as a scripture bringing us through, picking back up in Matthew 26, the 20 through 35, and moving through this. But... I believe as we take a look at what most people say is Thursday, I, I count as Wednesday. And you'll see why it plays out. But we see here in Matthew 26 all the account here as I believe the, the fact that this is Passover in the Garden of Gethsemane, etc., etc., etc. But here on this day, we see there in the very beginning there in Matthew 26, especially 17 through 29, it says, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread which is Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at, my, at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So there's preparation for Passover and then there's Passover that evening, right? After starting at, after uh, sunset, they have the meal taking place. So during the day they're they're preparing and then we see that they're uh, it's all about the Passover meal, finding and going to the place. Jesus has already laid it out. He said the disciples off. They're probably astonished like how do you know this man and how did you know this and, and how did you know he has an upper room and how? Jesus knows. And so he's directing them and they by this point they're not surprised by these things. 
But at sunset, they eat a meal with the twelve. Remember, during this meal, he also washes the disciples' feet to give an example of how they are to be to others, to be willing to be servants of others. If you're going to be leaders, you're going to be a servant. That's what it means to be a leader in the church. And you're going to be washing his feet, and then that point, that's when Judas departs. From my sequence of events, he's already made the arrangements. Now, the next day, he's about to bring fulfillment because he knows exactly after the meal where Jesus and the disciples were going to go. Like they always did. They left and they went to the Mount of Olives. And that's where they, all the time during the three years, when they were in Jerusalem, they would go there to pray during and amongst those olive trees. So he knew where the plan was. They probably talked about it over dinner. They talked about what they were going to do afterwards. It's not a surprise. He knew exactly where to bring the high priests and the, the temple guards, as we will talk about it here a little bit more. But in the morning, Jesus sent Peter and John to oversee the necessary preparations for the room and getting the meat and everything, the, sac- the sacred uh, meat of the Passover uh, prepared and ready and put in place. At noon this day, all the religious Jews gathered at the temple for the sacrifice of the second Temed, Lamb. So if you remember the sacred lamb, all of this was going on is Passover. That means all the Jews in the temple are all these lambs are coming in and they're killing all of these sacred, sacred lambs for the Passover meals. Remember in, the, in, in all the houses. And there were two daily sacrifices of a perfect lamb for the atonement of, for the sins of the community and for restoration of fellowship with God. That had to take place twice each day and it's known as the perpetual sacrifice or standing sacrifice like a standing order that was a standing order it had to take place you did not have to hear someone say you have to do it it's a standing order it always happens when it's passover the tamid may be derived from the word to stand, if you want to go back and look that up. But it happens every day, twice a day, according to the ancient Jewish sources outside of the Bible. The morning offering of the tamid took place at 9 a.m. Important to note that. And while the second one, the evening offering, took place in the afternoon at what time? 3 p.m. Make note of that when we talk about this on Friday, uh, that those, those times. The offering of the Tamid sacrifice was the most important of all the blood sacrifices in the Sinai covenant. It was a standing order. It had to happen twice a day, exactly at those times. You cannot miss that. It took priority over everything or anything. Matter of fact, we know the Jewish priest historian Flavius Josephus in 37 to 100 AD recorded that the day of the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple on the 9th of AB and 587 to 6 BC. The offering of the Tamid was so critical to the covenant of the Jewish people. And the obligation of the priest to fulfill those two sacrifices with no, no one can stop you. 
They did it even during the time when the Babylonians were coming in and taking over. That's how absolute committed to the standard, the standing order that God had given them in regards to that sacrifice. So 3 p.m., the sacrifice of the Passover lambs began lasting until about 5 p.m. That's when that's the evening, you know, the, the day ends and the evening or the night starts. Remember, in the Jewish days and nights, it is sunrise to sunset is the day. Sunset to sunrise is night. Again, very important you understand that because when we talk about on Friday about three days and three nights being in the, the tomb, it's very important you understand that sequence of events. And attending the Passover sacrifice was, wasn't mandatory, but partaking in the feast that evening was. You had to be part around that, uh, that table, partaking of the Passover, extremely important in that faith. And the Passover lamb was to be roasted and eaten in the evening before midnight. Passover was yearly. Focused on the deliverance from slavery to the Egyptians, freeing them. And we've studied that, obviously, in the Old Testament. The Passover was yearly, but the Timid was daily, focusing on the atoning for the sins and the restoration of the relationship with God. That's how they believed they could stay in a closeness with the Heavenly Father is through those animal sacrifices. That sacrifice by the high priest doing that and sprinkling the blood covered the people's sins as a nation. That's why it had to be done and they were not going to miss that's those sacrifices daily. But at sundown, and then there's a key word called uh, uh, Nisan, which is a, the Jewish calendar. We see that it started at Nisan 9. Now we're getting into Nisan uh, 14 and 15. And that's when this festival of the unleavened bread or Passover was taking place here. Now, so you had Passover, then you started right after that a seven-day celebration to remember that, G, that uh, they left Egypt and was quickly, uh, you know, they didn't have any bread during that period of time. There was absolutely no yeast that could be anywhere, any place, and they had to sweep everything from top to bottom, and it had to be almost like certified and verified that absolutely no yeast was in that house whatsoever. No leaven. If there was any leaven, that was, a, that was absolutely breaking uh, the law of the Jewish law uh, when it comes to celebrating the, the Passover, but the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But all day... Uh, that had to be shipped out. I don't care. That, that, that preparation day, the day before, you had to get... And we know in the scriptures, uh, leaven is, is, a, is a symbol of sin. And so it's important as you go through the scriptures, you understand that and, uh, and how important it is symbolically that they didn't even understand why doing in these, these preparations before these festivals and celebrations, uh, getting rid of the, uh, the yeast, that leaven, it's actually a demonstration of getting sin out of your life. Get it out of your house. To be able to come and to, to uh, draw close to God. 
And because anyone who still had yeast in their home come sundown, the start of the new day was supposed to be cast out of the community. That's how serious that part of the celebration was. It was a huge deal to a faithful practicing Jew. In the evening of Wednesday, tonight, uh, that night, Jesus gathered with his disciples. We see that in Matthew 26, 20. It says, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. We see in John 13, 2 through 5, he washed their feet. He says, and supper being ended. So many people thought they washed their feet before dinner. No, this was after dinner. After the discussion, after everything that was just brought to light in regards to Judas, we see that supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come to God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, was, which he was girded. We see also in Luke 22, verses 14 through 15, they ate the Passover meal. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. <laughs> That's a light conversation around the dinner table, isn't it? Kids, <laughs> I'm going to suffer. I've been waiting all, all, the, all this time to be able to have this meal with you. That would be a pretty heavy, pretty heavy uh, conversation with the guys. But Judas left to find the guards who would arrest him. Because remember, at first it started with a desire, opportunity. He took a step and followed through with that desire and opportunity. He landed 30 pieces of silver and built a plan knowing now is the time. Because even Jesus called him out, as we know in the scripture, that you are the one I'm talking about betraying. The one that the, we're double dipping, the one that you're going to get, the piece of bread from me. Everyone's like, was it me, Jesus? Is it I'm the one who's betraying you? What? None of them. They all, they, Jesus says, if he's in here and he says, one of you will betray me. How many of you in your mind would all of a sudden say, I know my heart. Is it me, Lord? Could I betray you? Could I walk away from you? Everything you've, everything I've known about you, and could I just walk away from you? I would betray you and turn you in to an enemy? I hope tonight you find yourself absolutely not. Well, that you'd be sounding like Peter now, wouldn't you? We should seek our hearts, Lord. Let my faith be so deep, so strong and trusting in you that I would not entertain any desire to walk away from you, let alone turn people against you, an enemy. But we find here as we look at this that Judas left, John 13, 27 through 30, he left, he left the, the dinner and everyone else 
went to the garden called Gethsemane and on the hill across from the city called of the Mount of Olives. We see that in Matthew 26, 36. And Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I pray and go and pray over there. And if you remember the account, he prayed, he came back. Uh, the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John fell asleep. Can't you stay awake, guys? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boss, yeah, we're trying. <laughs> we're tired here. He goes back and prays, comes back. He sees they're still sleeping. He just goes back and prays. Didn't even wake him up. But you remember the great drops of blood? The great anguish? The battle, the spiritual battle that was going on? Satan was attacking Jesus, trying to stop. All the dynamics. We can't even fathom the, the level of spiritual warfare and agony in our Lord's heart. All you know is that the blood, the pressure was so much, the blood was coming through the pores of the skin. But then we see in the scripture here, after that moment, that Jesus was arrested by the temple guard under the control of the high priest in the Sanhedrin. These were not Roman guards. These were the, the actual high priests and the temple guards, these religious leaders that were coming in the, uh, by being led by Judas. And, uh, to, and if you remember the scripture, Jesus said, don't, these, let these guys go. Don't mess with these guys. You come for me. And you know the account there. Do you remember as they came in, uh, uh, one of the disciples, <laughs> who was pretty uh, quick to respond, took out the sword, who said, I need to carry a sword, Jesus. Don't you think I need to carry a sword? No, you don't need a sword. Finally, yeah, you need a sword. And when he had a sword, what did he do with it? He immediately just started swinging and cut off the high priest's ear, right? Malchus, right? And Jesus ended up having to reach down, put the ear back on and heal him. What amazing Amazing. But even before then, if you read the scriptures and the account, when they came after him, Jesus just spoke. What happened to him? What happened to him? They blew him right away. His words just, the, the, his words alone had such power, they all fell back and onto the ground. Wouldn't you think at that point, if you're a high priest, let alone a temple guard, that you would have said, I want nothing to do with this. I want out of here. But when your heart is that hard, when your heart has no care of whatsoever, not looking for Jesus, not looking for the Messiah, you're looking for your lifestyle and your little religious religiosity and legalism, and you want nothing to mess with it, that's how hard your heart can be. Even the obvious of things God moving in your life and blowing you back doesn't affect you. May we be on guard. Don't let our hearts get to a point where it can be so wrapped up in religiosity or legalism that it can cause you to harden your heart for your love and your sensitivity and the still small voice of our Lord speaking to you. But we see in there, Matthew 26, 50 through 56, that friend, why have you come? He called Judas friend. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. But all of this, verse 56 of chapter 26 of Matthew, 
But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook <laughs> Jesus and fled. Boom! You can see him taking off running, man. Oh, unbelievable. But the first thing we see happen as they grab a hold of Jesus, we see that first Jesus was taken to the former high priest, Ananias. We see that in John 18, verses 12 through 13. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of Jews of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Ananias Ananias first, for he was the father-in-law of, of uh, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So we see here, as we go through this, uh, that when he gets to Ananias' house, Jesus was taken into Caiaphas' palace, where he was tried on the testimony of false witnessing. Remember, Monday and Tuesday, they were trying to constantly get him on false teaching, false witnessing. And they still try to use it against him. And then John 18, 24, we see that Ananias sent him, Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I don't want to do with this guy. Get him out. We, we did the, the kind of this little deal here that didn't, I, just get him to Caiaphas. Don't get him, get him out of my house. And Jesus quotes, if you remember, and he's speaking to him, Psalm 110.1. And he also references Daniel's messianic vision of the divine Messiah in Daniel, from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And in quoting these two, two scriptures, he made a clear, absolute, guaranteed, clear message to the Sanhedrins there, that council, that he was the promised Messiah. And do you remember what happened after he said those words? They started ripping their clothes and just in this whole drama. That's what they do. The big drama of ripping their clothes. Oh, this blasphemy. Oh, how can this be? We see that in Mark 14, verses 63 and 64, when the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Right there. Boom. He's dead. He's dead. There was no compromise. There's no thing. They weren't even supposed to be having this council at that time of night. And they are not to sentence anyone to death. They did not have the ability to do that. But when a man was condemned to death, the judge tore his robes and never repaired them as a sign of the individual's break with the covenant and the infertility of the sentence. The finality, I should say, of the sentence. So it's so drama happening at that moment in time. Uh, you can see what took place here. This Passover day. Pretty heavy, huh? Come back Friday. Because on Friday we will pick back up where on third, what took place on Thursday, which is a very critical conversation about his torture, but of course going to the cross and being nailed to the cross, his death on the cross, and his burial. And we'll take that Thursday and Friday, or Thursday event on Friday night at 6.30 here.